Well, uh, uh, let me add my welcome to you. I'm, I'm Bob, one of the leaders of the church here, and it's a joy to welcome you all here this morning, especially our guests and visitors. Welcome, Joan. Thank you for coming uh, again and visiting us and sharing what God is doing amazingly through Morning Star. Welcome, um, Mike and June Bradley. Great to have you with us, all the way from Sunderland. And uh, it's, there are other visitors amongst us, so you're all welcome. Thank you. Let's ask God's help as we look at this passage towards the end of 1 Timothy. Heavenly Father, we ask and pray in Jesus' name that, firstly, I ask for myself that you would give me the words you want me to say, and that you would give us all ears to hear what you are saying through this passage to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I'm addressing, I think, 5% of the world's richest population. I think that's true. We don't think that way, but I think that's right that Joan pointed that out. Let me ask you, therefore, how content would you say that you are? How really genuinely content would you say you are with your lot in life? Put it another way, do you ever feel envious of others? Do you ever go, oh, if only? What is the greatest gain that you have in your life when you do your accounts? What's the thing that's on the plus side, the greatest gain that you have? What's the greatest treasure in your life? Let me ask you this. Will you be able to, will your greatest treasure that you answer in your own mind now to that question, will you have to leave it behind one day when you die, or will you be able to take it with you into the next life? We are, as the singer, one of our own poets has said, living in a material world. And now, in our culture, materialism and the passionate, relentless pursuit of money is front and centre before our eyes, 24-7. And I believe what Paul is saying through Tim to Timothy and, by extension, to us, the greatest danger facing the evangelical Christian church is the love of money. What are all the new car adverts aim for in their pitch for you to buy their car. It's never about the specification of the car. It is always about the lifestyle statement that you will make if only you buy our car and sign up to our finance deal. Their goal is to make you, their, their goal is to make you discontent with what you have and promise you contentment through possessing that car. By the way, read that across to any advertisement you like. If you possess this, your life will be complete. By the way, that is the essence of all temptation. What has this got to do with our passage this morning? Put it another way, what has the love of money got to do with gospel ministry? Which is the theme of this concluding section in Paul's letter to Timothy, answer everything. Ephesus was a very prosperous city. And there were some very rich people in that city. And some of them had come to faith. We're going to meet them next week. In chapter 6, verse 17, Paul, uh, Timothy is told by Paul to command those who are rich on the five percentile of the human population, command those who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, 
which is so uncertain to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So there were rich folk in Ephesus, and it would appear from chapter 6, 1 through 2, that some of them ran successful businesses, and some of them owned believing slaves who were, so there were, there were believing slaves who were members of the church at Ephesus, and there were believing slave owners, businessmen and women, no doubt. And that's what chapter 6, 1 through 2 talks about. Let me read it to you. All, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. That's the context of chapter 6. And it would appear that some of the church leaders of Ephesus had fallen prey to the seductive love of money, and their ministries apparently would seem that they were being bankrolled by generous but naive donors. And the effects of them turning away from the faith, verse 10, some have turned away from the faith, turning away from the gospel, verse 3, was having a devastating effect upon themselves and on the church family, verses 4 through 5, and supremely on God's name. Verse 1. We've been learning that Timothy's charge, which extends to all those in pastoral responsibility, be they elders, you call elders and pastors, the terms are interchangeable. It's the charge from the Apostle Paul himself is this. Man of God, guard God's family with God's gospel for God's glory. Say that again. Man of God, guard God's family with God's gospel for God's glory. Guarding God's family from ferocious wolves from outside the church and also more subtly from false teachers arising from within the church. So Paul is writing to Timothy who's to teach the church these things so that we as the congregation of God's people, God's household, know how to conduct ourselves in God's household. Chapter 3, 14 through 15, which we've touched on before. And specifically and practically, this can covers, not exclusively, but Paul is diving in on specifics in this letter, honouring our widows, honouring those who are really in need. Chapter 5, 1 through 16. And as we thought about last week, honouring our elders. Chapter 5, 17 through 25. And honouring our bosses. Chapter 6, 1 through 2. How we conduct ourselves in God's household will require us to honour our widows, honour our elders, and honour our bosses to the glory of God. This week we're learning about the power of money. And unless it is handled well in accordance with the gospel will have devastating effects upon the ministers and the health of the church and on the Lord's name in our community. Paul gives Timothy three hugely important lessons to hold on to for the sake of God's name and for the sake of the health and the prosperity of God's household. The three lessons from verses 3 through 10 are these. Number one, 
be aware, men of the word can become men of the world. Verses 3 through 5. Number two, be warned, men of the word who become men of the world destroy people. Verses 9 through 10. And the third lesson is be content, because godliness with contentment is great gain. Verses 6 through 8. So let's walk through the text this morning and look at the first be aware, men of the world can be men of the word can become men of the world. What are the warning signs that a man of the word are becoming men of the world? Let me just say before we look at what Paul says, and he does give a diagnosis. He does give the sign and the symptoms of the disease. But before we dive into that, let me just say this. We must understand how vulnerable we are as Christians to the pull of the world around us. And our elders are no different. We are all men with feet with clay. We all get seduced sometimes by shiny things. And in fact, the elders are the prime targets for Satan's schemes. Notice what Paul says at the end of chapter 2. It's a summary statement. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. Verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching. So the the sign that a man of the word is in danger of becoming a man of the world is there a slow but steady departure from God's gospel from these things that he talks about in verse 2 and and specifically to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching. In chapter 1, verse 11, Paul has already said the criteria, the baseline The litmus test, the acid test of everything that is taught in a church must be tested against the gospel. The gospel is the baseline and everything else must be tested against it. It's amazing how many Christians don't know the gospel. Everything must be evaluated against the gospel. So the sign that Paul gives that a man of the word is becoming a man of the world is there's a departure... From the gospel. He said these things. Paul has commanded Timothy to teach and insist on these things. Let me just say this. This is a teaching that's around and alive and damaging to the church. Oh well, we have what Jesus taught and we love what Jesus says, and we actually approve fully of what Jesus says because Jesus is all lovely and kind and lovely. We love Jesus, but the Apostle Paul, well, he's a horrible bloke. Let me just say this, and the New Testament makes it crystal clear. Walk out on Paul, you walk out on Jesus. You cannot have your cake and eat it. Walk out on the Apostle Paul who's speaking and teaching and writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of the risen Christ, and you walk out on Jesus. That's why he says, command and teach these things. But what are the causes? That's the sign, a man of the word is becoming a man of the world, is a departure from the gospel. There are three root causes that Paul 
reveals to Timothy and by extension to us. Verse 4, the first is a heart problem. They are conceited and understand nothing. Pride has crept in. They exhibit a pride, often camouflaged as false humility. The pride that, that claims great insights into the mystery of God. And Paul has already said, notice what he says, they understand nothing. They think they know a lot, they know nothing. And their hearts are so big, and their egos are so, they love to have their egos stroked. And he's already mentioned that in chapter 1, verse 7. In chapter 1, verse 7, he's giving another portrait of false teachers about how they are conceited and they've forsaken a clear conscience. It's the, number, the, the primary root cause that Paul gives that a man of the word is becoming a man of the world is a heart problem, pride. The second root cause is a head problem, a corrupt mind. Look at reading on in verse 4. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of, notice the word, corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth the first is a heart problem the second is a head problem a corrupt mind they have an obsessive interest in controversial matters they love a good fight they love a good argument I well remember working with a a, a quality engineer a very good friend of mine but he often and he could he loved to argue he was so argumentative he was great at it and he said to me once, you know, he said, learning to rest, learning, you'll learn this, Penny will drop one day, Bob, that arguing with me is like wrestling with a pig in mud. The pig enjoys it. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels. And notice the fruit that is following in their wake. It is devastating to the church. There's envy in the church, there's strife in the church. There's malicious talk, there's evil suspicions, there's constant friction. Because they they have been robbed. False teachers, says Paul, men of the word who become men of the world, rob God's people of the truth, verse 5. That is a terrible indictment. Heart problem, head problem, number three, root cause, worship problem. Because he continues in verse 5, and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Jesus said himself, did he not, you cannot serve both God and money. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Paul brings this out, and we'll touch on this in a moment. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You see, when men of the word turn away from the God of the gospel, there is always another God to which they turn, and the God is money. And even some of our own poets have said, money makes the world go round. Makes the world go around. Money makes the world go around. But the love of money kills church leaders. You see, Paul includes this diagnosis for Timothy to be aware of, and for us to be aware of, that men of the word can sadly and tragically become men of the world. So we need to be much in prayer against the wiles of the devil. 
And we need to hold our elders to account. And we need to ensure, as Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3, anyone who's being considered to serve on the eldership of the church must not be a lover of money. How do you know someone's a lover of money? What does love of money look like? How do you know you've got the disease? Let me, I'll show you a bit later. So, be aware, men of the word can become men of the world. Can you flick that slide for me? Thank you. Next one back. Thank you, James. No, that's gone. It was the upload problem this morning. What that should say on the screen behind me is, be warned, men of the word who become men of the world, destroy people, verses 9 through 10. Notice, if you've got Bibles, turn to verses 9 through 10. How, notice how powerful the desires for money are and how destructive they are too. Verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and into a trap, sorry, and, and a trap and into many foolish and harmful <laughs> desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Why? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice the power of the desires. This is disordered worship. At the root of sin, there's disordered worship. People who want to get rich. Harmful desires, literally craving, un- un- uh, having an uncontrollable lust for the love of money, eager for money. Can you imagine anything worse than having a love affair? Having a love affair is a powerful emotional experience. Having a must-have love affair with money is an incredibly powerful emotional experience. How do you know whether or not you are having a love affair with money? How do you know? Because we, we don't, none of us want to be trapped by the love of money, do we? No, of course we don't. How do you know you've got it? You won't know you've got it. <laughs> You'll tell yourself you haven't got it. My heart lies to me 24-7. My heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. And I guess yours is too. I can't trust me to tell me the truth. Because I lie to me. I justify me, I want to please me, because that's how my heart is defectively wired. So let me ask you these questions. How healthy or unhealthy is your relationship with your money? Here's some questions for you to think about. Do you worry about money? Do you worry about not having enough money? Do you worry about where your next meal is coming from? Do you worry about whether you've got enough in your pension pot? I can't, it's, it's impossible to go on Google now and search anything without pension advice popping up. I think they know my, how old I am, so that's probably why I'm targeted, because they want to get me worried about it and offer me this wonderful pension plan so I can buy myself a hot tub and think about the meaning of life. <laughs> Do you worry about money not having enough? Let me come right to the point. Do you find it hard to give generously and sacrificially of your money to the work of the gospel? Do you ever indulge in retail therapy to cheer you up when you're feeling down? I'm just going to treat myself. Feeling a bit down. Need a treat. Ooh, that's better. 
Do you dread bills and bank statements landing on your doormat? You see, it is a very real and present danger for all of us. And for those in gospel ministry, it is a deadly threat. And it would appear that some of the, false, some of the teachers who were men of the word had become men of the world. That's why Paul says what he said to us last week in chapter 5, 17 through 18 that those who are worthy of double honour should be rewarded appropriately, <clears throat> but those who are sinning should be reproved publicly. Notice that's the power of the desires, but notice the destruction where those things end up. It destroys the person infected with the love of money. Verse 10, they've wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's devastating to themselves, but it's also destructive on other church members. Verse 9, and plunge people into ruin and destruction. When men of the word become men of the world, and because they have a following within the church, they take others down with them when they fall. That is a terrifying and a sad reality. And let me, please hear me on this, ladies. Please, please hear me right on this. It would appear that in the church at Ephesus, there were rich women who were being naively taken in by predatory so-called pastors. Chapter 2, 2 Timothy 3, 3, 6. 2 Timothy 3, 6 says... There are, there are certain men of the word, so we think, who become men of the world, and they look out for rich women to suck them dry. That would appear to be where they were getting their support from to propagate lies in the church. No wonder, Paul says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil to the person addicted to it to the people around them and supremely to God's name in the community that we are called to serve so in the light of these warnings of this dark passage where do we find the power to resist the love of money and to keep on keeping on loving and serving generously in the church to which the Lord has called us and the middle of the passage tells us the answer. Verses 6 through, 6 through 8. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. How many of you would be content with just food and clothing? Godliness plus contentment. He puts it in a financial statement. This is a finance statement. The way he words this, he's talking to people who know finance. He's using financial language in his communication of this. It's, it's, it's brilliant. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. That's his financial statement. Godliness. It is the lifelong investment of worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ 
You are what you worship. You know these things, these um, commercials that you see on television? You are what you eat. Now, I think that's true to a degree, but the, the Bible makes it crystal clear you are who you worship. You are shaped by and made into the image of the object of your worship. That's why we're called to worship him. That's why we're called to praise him and adore him. Godliness is the lifelong investment of worshipping him who is the image of the invisible God. And we become therefore more and more like him as we worship him. Godliness. And Paul says, chapter 3, 16, he is the source of it. That's what we saw in 3, uh, 16, beyond all question. The mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world and taken up to glory. He is the source of godliness. Number two, he's the motivation for our pursuit of godliness. That's why Paul says in 4.7, train yourselves to be godly. Create a healthy, insatiable appetite for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 6, as Paul brings the letter to a close, he's not just the source of it and the motivation of it, he is the goal of it. Verses 14 through 16. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God the blessed, the happy and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light with whom whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. So godliness is the lifelong investment of your life in worshipping and adoring the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the source of it, he's the motivation in it, and he's the goal of it. Contentment, contentment is the priceless secret of trusting Jesus in Jesus' strength in any and every situation. That's, that's, a, that's my summary of, of the definition of biblical contentment. It is the priceless secret of trusting Jesus in Jesus' strength in any and every situation. If you want to know where I got that from, it's Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Have a look at that over lunch. It is the priceless secret of trusting Jesus in Jesus' strength in any and every situation. You can't trust Jesus in your own strength. I've tried. I've got the bruises to prove it. You can't trust Jesus in your own strength. You can only trust him in his strength. Lord, give me faith to trust you. Give, help me to trust you in, and in this and any and every situation. So that I can be content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry whether in plenty or in want, whether in health or failing, whether in good health or failing health, whether walking free or in prison. That's where Paul was when he wrote the letter. In any and every situation. And it's the secret of trusting Jesus in Jesus' strength. Who brought any and every situation into your life? He did. He wove that into your life. He is the author of that. And he's the only one you can trust in and every, in and every situation. 
Nothing happens to you that is outside of his sovereign control. And nothing needful will he withhold. Everything you have you need from him. And that's learning to trust him in his strength. No wonder, Paul says, godliness plus contentment are investments that you will make in your life that will never fail and always deliver. Great gain. It's a financial assessment. Great gain. He uses financial language all through this section, which we'll touch on again next week. Godliness plus contentment makes perfect sense. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and could take nothing out of it. It's logical. When you think about it, it's logical. What did you bring into the world? Nothing. What will you leave the world with? Nothing. It's logical. Therefore, it solves the head problem. Remember we saw the diagnosis? They had a head problem. Godliness with contentment solves the head problem. Godliness with contentment keeps us focused on reality and our Father's loving provision. Verse 8, and so it kills all our cravings. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Who gave you the food? God did. Did he promise to do so? Yes, he did. And clothing. Who promised to give you that? God did. He is faithful. Is he not? He is utterly, 100% faithful. You see, it keeps us focused on reality and our Father's loving provision, and that will kill your cravings. It will kill your cravings. What would you rather have, a craving or a contentment? Because, you see, it solves the heart problem. One of the other symptoms of, the, of a man of the word becoming a man of the world, head problem, heart problem. Godliness with contentment solves the head problem and the heart problem. And godliness with contentment honors God who generously and freely gave us his son on the cross. The supreme treasure of the cosmos has been given to us. No wonder Paul You can imagine him just weeping with joy when he wrote this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. You see, godliness with contentment solves the worship problem too. It solves the head problem, the heart problem, the worship problem. That's where we will find where the power is, where the true freedom is. This is where the all-satisfying treasure of the cosmos is. Is that where you are living right now? Is godliness with contentment written over your life in any and every situation? How content you are is linked proportionately to how much you love Jesus. Your contentment is linked directly and proportionately to how much you love Jesus. So if you're, if you're struggling with contentment, you know what to do. <laughs> Fall in love with Jesus. Spend time at the cross. Let, the work of, let his work of him coming into the world to save sinners melt your heart afresh. You see, the love of money 
is the root of all kinds of evil. So Paul tells us to be aware men of the word can become men of the world. To be warned that men of the word who become men of the world destroy people. And to be content because godliness with contentment is great gain. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we (coughs) praise, bless, thank you, adore you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Help us, Father, as we've sat under your word this morning, which is quite searching, quite telling, quite exposing. Whatever it takes, Lord, deliver us, if any of us are trapped there from the love of money, and replace that with a deep, all-satisfying contentment and a a longing to be more and more and more like Jesus and trusting him in his strength through any and every situation. We pray this so that your name might be hallowed and glorified in the community in which we serve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a great song that Eddie's chosen to conclude our time together. Love to chat with you afterwards. Um, If there's time, please don't rush off. If you can stay...